they approached me and said, hey, we're opening two new higher-end stores, one in Miami Design District, one in Rodeo, on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Would you be interested in putting a selection of vintage watches in there for sale? Took me all of about two seconds to say yeah. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Eric Wind is joining me for his second episode of Collector's Gene Radio today, and as you could imagine, we're chatting all things watches in Wind Vintage. Since our last chat, Eric's had a countless list of exciting things going on for him and his brand, such as his partnership with Kith, the several Rowing Blazers collaborations, a volume two of his HSMY talk, his Significant Watches podcast, and a lot more. Most notably, the incredible selection of vintage watches you could shop on his website, windvintage.com. It's not often you get to chat with someone who is so honest and knowledgeable across so many different brands. Eric's continuous efforts to be involved in as much as he can definitely attributes to where he and Wind Vintage are at today. It's always great to catch up and pick his brain as if I don't bug him enough already. Needless to say, I'm sure we'll be doing much more of these. So without further ado, my friend Eric Wind for Collector's Gene Radio. Eric Wind, welcome back to Collector's Gene Radio. Cameron Ross Steiner, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> my pleasure. It's been a while since our first chat, but it, uh, it, it was a hit, so I figured I'd, I'd have you back again. It's all about the clickbait. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Wait till you see the caption that I have for this oh. one. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, of course. What's on the wrist today? Or what was on the wrist today now that it's almost 10.30 or 9.30 p.m. where you are? I've got a 10.16 on the wrist that I'm very excited about. Normally, I lean toward the earlier 1016s from the 1960s with the rivet bracelets. This is a sure. mid-80s example, uh, but super crispy, unpolished, and the loom has turned such an attractive color that it makes my heart hurt when I look at it. So that's, kind <laughs> of, uh, uh, that, that's when I know it's a really, really good watch when it, like, evokes like a physical reaction when I look at it. It's so good. <laughs> so uh, Love it. Is that in your personal collection or is that uh, on the site? It might be. I just got it within the last few days and I'm really, really enjoying it. So it. Uh, Yeah, so we'll see if it uh, continues to mesh. I really like it. Glad to hear it. Yeah, what's on your wrist? A watch that actually just arrived yesterday. It is a... Doxa. <laughs> <laughs> flow prof oh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it's a uh patek philippe aquanaut reference 5165 nice i got rid of my 5066 and swapped it out for this guy i'm surprised you went 5165 not 5065 yeah i think one thing is the pricing i know a 5065 is incredible and would love to have one but a really great deal came about for this 5165. And I just love that they made this for a couple of years. Yeah. Not that it really matters to anybody, but I think most importantly, the fact that it's 38 millimeters. So they took the 5065 and they just made the the next modern version of it. Yeah, exactly. With which was kind of cool. Strap. The big thing is the strap uh, going flush into the case. Yes. And the only thing that's a bummer about these ones is that at least for the 5165, they only made black stra uh, straps for them. So I can't swap them out with anything too fun. And I can't find anybody who made aftermarket ones like they do for the 5167. So it's time to step up. You can start selling them on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I just found a, a hole in the market. Yeah, exactly. My opinion is you should enjoy it for a little bit, then sell it and get a 5065. <laughs> yes, I'm uh so far I'm in, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I know, man, if your prestige and taste uh, deserves a 5065 jumbo. I loved the 5066. I thought it was a great 
great watch. I didn't, I didn't mind the size. You know me. No, fifty sixty five will be better on you, but I think so. We'll, we'll let Madeline decide. <laughs> she'll uh, she'll decide to put it put it into the house. Yeah, exactly. That's good. <laughs> so last time we spoke, you were launching a Seiko collab with Rowing Blazers, and since then you've done several. So the feedback from what I could see has been amazing, but I, I would love to start off and hear your perspective on all that because it seems like it's an ongoing thing and there's a lot more in the works. Yeah, we're, um, I mean, to be able to have participated in this process is pretty amazing. I never thought I'd be, you know, designing a Seiko that the public could buy. It's just fun to create something that's approachable, that's a great watch, you know, very few problems with these watches mechanically. You can wear, you know, wear the watches. I know someone who's about to do an Ironman wearing one. And uh, whether you have a collection worth millions of dollars or a collection worth under a thousand dollars, can kind of nod and say, that's a cool watch. Uh, and congrats, it's a great watch to wear. So um, we've obviously done three capsules. We hope to do more. The first one obviously was the dive watch uh, with the rotating bezel. We did three of 42 millimeters. That's pretty much all that was in the Seiko 5 Sports line at the time in 2021. And now they've obviously really expanded it to a variety of models. But we did the SRPE line, which is, you know, was renamed SRPJ for our watches. And also, you know, a watch that can be worn by anyone. It wears more like 38 millimeters with the short lugs and, you know, a lot of women wear them and enjoy them. And it's just gratifying to, for many people that this is their first mechanical watch. Uh, it's a great place to start. It's fun, which is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to take ourselves too seriously. And, uh, it's been really a wonderful project. Yeah, no, you guys knocked it out of the park, so hats off to you. Thank you, Cameron. You also just launched a new initiative with Kith, which I think is really special. So, I mean, were you and Ronnie Feig just hanging in Boca Raton one day and decided to come up with this idea? <laughs> I wish, yeah. Um, it was uh, great. They approached me and said, hey, we're opening two new higher-end stores, one in Miami Design District, one in Rodeo on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, would you be interested in putting a selection of vintage watches in there for sale? Took me all of about two seconds to say yeah. <laughs> um, and the feedback's been really wonderful. We've sold far more watches than I would have expected. It's been, you know, fun to have something cool. People come in and sometimes you get the impulse buy or sometimes you've got someone who has really been looking for something for a while or I bring a client to the place because the watches are listed on my site. So uh, it's been uh, a lot of fun. They're an extremely professional business. I'm super impressed with the quality of the staff that Ronnie has and the work ethic and culture. It's not so easy to find that these days, honestly. A lot of people mailing it in are not on top of the game, but Everyone at Kith is really on top of it, and there's a good ethos and culture there. I really view it, my job as 80%, obviously, like buying and selling watches and making a living and doing other things. But like, I try to dedicate 20% or so to just being a positive person for the vintage watch community. People email me all the time with questions about random things and I try to answer them. I could just ignore it, but I find that doing good things generally comes back around. No one, you know, was forcing me. I certainly wasn't paid to do the HSNY talks and there were a lot of work, but I think it's very important for people to be able to learn about how to collect vintage watches, do things like the reference points videos with Hodinkee or put vintage watches for sale in a place where influential people might walk in and get people to think beyond just going into a modern AD and buying a brand new watch. And it's ultimately my future at play because I'm, you know, over 
over-invested in vintage watches. So I'd like them to <laughs> continue growing in value and interest. But, uh, but I really think it's very important to share the gospel of vintage watches with others. Yeah, absolutely. And is the idea with Kith, obviously to sell the watches there, but to kind of rotate a capsule of, of new vintage watches every so often to freshen up the showcase in there? Yeah, yeah. We try to keep eight in each location. And yeah, obviously Rolex is kind of the largest market of collectors and interest and robust, but I like to put other things in there like Omega Speedmasters and those types of watches. So even Zeniths and Hoyers and unusual things. So it's, uh, yeah, it's always a mix, but it's fun. Yeah, no, looks awesome. Next, next time any of you guys are in Miami or on Rodeo Drive, go check out the store and check out Eric's uh, little selection there. And we're in, um, we're in the new Williamsburg, Brooklyn flagship as well. And honestly, they're selling watches very, very well out of that location. New York is still the mecca for vintage watch lovers, I would say. So uh, that's been great. Awesome. So you're covering a lot of different corners of the uh, of the part of the world over there. Exactly. Yeah. You've been also on your website listing a ton of incredible vintage and modern watches, um, which I find to be really refreshing for someone who is in your position as a dealer, right? Because most of the people that are in your position as a dealer don't really list much on their website. A lot of the stuff that they sell doesn't even make it to the site, um, which I'm sure still happens with you too. But it's nice to see you listing a really wide variety and plethora of great vintage watches for sale all the time. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's uh, it's certainly faster to just list things and let people find you. And, and it creates a, a culture. I know clients that are coming back to the site, you know, five times a day to look at what we may have put up during the course of the day. We get a lot of page views, which is wonderful. Uh, we get almost Wikipedia-like editing by people who text us if there's any mis- if there are any mistakes on a page. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you put five ADN links and those are ADN links. We got that yesterday. Uh, it was Charlie's, uh, Charlie Dunn's mistake, but that's okay. He's doing a great job. I guess you got to <laughs> fire him. Exactly. But we're on track for over 3 million page views in 2023, which is insane for a site. We don't spend any money on SEO. It just is all organic and clients that are addicted to uh, to seeing what we've put up. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, you you listed a incredible tanks and tray the other day. Yeah, that was a very special watch. Is that a piece unique? It was. It was custom commission. What do you think of the size of that model? I like it a lot. Um, yeah. My wrist is a little bigger than yours, but I think it's spectacular watch. Um, and I uh, wouldn't mind a vintage Centre in platinum one day like that. That wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't suck? Yeah, exactly. From the 1920s, it'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, that's in trade. I think went on hold pretty quick as it soon did. as you put it yeah. up there. Yeah, we got. I didn't even think we'd get as many inquiries as we did, but we got just a deluge of inquiries both through our website and through Chrono Twenty Four. Uh, so it was it was insane. Yeah, really a great combo. Do you have any Cartier watches in your collection at the moment? I still have my Santos Dumont, and I still have my uh, Benoit. Nice, yeah. And then I have a, still have my white gold uh, Piaget Tank Normal, which is the same size as the Cartier Tank Normal. It's virtually the same watch. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, really neat. Obviously would love a Cartier Tank Normal, but kind of seems silly to have both. Yeah, yeah. You sold your Royal Oak, right? Sold my gold Royal Oak and bought a steel 15,000 reference Royal Oak. Nice. Which I think's a really interesting model, obviously, because Royal Oaks wear a lot bigger than what they suggest in their millimeter size. Yeah. So this one technically coming in at like 33 millimeters or whatever it is, wears so well and and more like a 35. And it's just a really neat little 
fun watch to put on. You kind of, it's so light, you kind of forget about it sort of thing. Yeah. And it's still super sporty. I've been loving the Royal Oak more and more and more, the more that I wear it and the more that I, not so much the modern stuff, but great watch. I, I love it. That's fantastic. How about you? Any, any Cartiers you've, you've added recently? I'm not a, the biggest Cartier collector. I still would like a Tank Louis Jumbo in white gold in mm. case anyone sees one. I saw one recently. The case was a little polished. I'm kind of crazy about that stuff, so I would yep. prefer it to be unpolished. But they just so rarely come along. They're hard enough to find in yellow, but uh, white is, is crazy rare. Yeah, you could spend your whole life. <laughs> hopefully it's not that long but yeah (laughs) hopefully you find one yeah and i i I love the tank normal as well i had i had a really fantastic one recently i sold and i was tempted to to keep it for a few minutes or hours but i decided to let it go yeah i mean you have a great white gold santos that you have at uh kith in miami yeah that's been nice i get inquiries about it you know occasionally it's a great great watch i find that era to be a little bit small on my wrist mm. but they're great watches yeah they are for sure yeah that's uh that one should sell no problem yeah, yeah, yeah. has has your collecting philosophies or the things that you've been chasing has it changed much since we last spoke I still try to limit my Rolex collection to no more than one piece of each model, generally. I occasionally break that rule, but try to <laughs> do it after a little bit of time. Um, the exception is I have a ton of really great Vulcane crickets that I love, but, you know, just one Daytona, one GMT, one Explorer 2, one Sub. Now this might be my next 1016 uh, Explorer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I try to keep just one and I try not to get too high on my own supply. So right. there are just, I think that the it's a test of like, if it really does almost make my heart hurt when I look at the watch, <laughs> either when I'm holding right. it on my wrist, if I, if I feel like that strong, like, wow, this is so good, then... I've got to try to figure out how to make it happen. Yeah. So now that you've been listing a lot more modern stuff on the site, I mean, obviously you're, you're primarily a vintage guy, but are you coming around to any of the modern stuff? I mean, I know last time we spoke, or maybe it was when you were in town, we were talking how obviously the, the GMT and the, and the new sub, they're all much bulkier and, and bigger cases, but are you coming around to it more than now that you get to wear them more often? They have a place, obviously like they're excellent watches, well-built. You know, I think from an environmental perspective, there's probably too many modern watches being made. We don't need all this stuff, you know, being made in the world uh, and just going into the same people's safes and safe deposit boxes. But, um, you know, the in general, I find the construction of, of vintage pieces to be more... Uh, charismatic there is more sort of hand intervention you can just tell when you and you know feel that when you feel these things so there's much more of the robotic and machine process for making modern watches that they don't often have that feeling of a soul that the vintage pieces have but there certainly are some things that are impressive we have a 38 millimeter royal oak and rose gold on the site right now and Charlie and I, when we got the watch, were super impressed with the case construction. It's just a beautiful watch, all the angles and rose gold. We've had some, obviously, a number of modern steel Royal, Royal Oaks, but they're not nearly as impressive for some reason, the construction and the brushing and everything as the gold piece. With the blue dial, too, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, it's a very, very attractive watch. I'll say that I have not been super impressed with the modern Patek Philippe watches. Some of the Calatravas we've had and other pieces like the 6007. There is no brushing whatsoever anywhere on the case, so it just feels like a scratch magnet. It's all the same high polish finish, 
and like Laurent Ferrier watches have the same issue. A lot of much modern watches don't know how to put brushing into it. At least with Elanga and Zana, you get the brushed side, like vintage, you know, Batek Philippe, you have brushed sides of the case, etc. Yeah, they excel at that. Yeah, but now it's just like literally one big scratch magnet. Uh, and uh, I feel like I might scratch the watch just putting it on my wrist. <laughs> so uh, they're not my favorite, I feel like. I think the problem with most modern Patek, especially, first off, the size is too big. I don't understand the allure of like these massive dress watches. Yeah, 40 millimeters is just insane for a dress watch. It just reminds me of a, of a wife who goes to buy her husband, who's a financier, a Christmas gift. Yeah. And she just walks into the store and has to choose from three brands, 45 millimeter dress watches. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Also, obviously, Rolex sells a lot. It seems to sell a lot more 40 and 41 millimeter date just and date eights than 36. And it just is way too big on people. I have women come to me all the time. I wanted a 41 millimeter date chest. Oh, it looks so silly. I'm like, that, that. it's not even something I would wear myself. Like, what? Wow, you really need to rethink this. <laughs> <laughs> rethink, rethink your life. Yeah, yeah. Rethink this before you make a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Are you seeing collectors trending in certain ways in, in terms of what they're after now? I mean, obviously, everyone wants you know, the pieces that we, we all know of. But are you seeing certain trends? I mean, we're seeing things like these vintage Pateks on these integrated mesh woven bracelets with diamonds and all those sorts of pieces are kind of making a little bit of a comeback. But what, what else are you seeing out there? There's a lot of uh, attention on Daniel Roth. I was saying uh, recently that collectors like to think they're kind of unique in their approach, but they're just lemmings following each other around. Uh, so all this Daniel Roth stuff, uh, and attention is obviously spurred by the relaunch of the brand. Same with Gerald Genta, where it's starting to see more interest in, in the brand, uh, obviously, as they relaunch it. And I think there has been a trend toward formality. Uh, you were way ahead of the curve with that, always into fancy stuff. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, you foresaw the Cartier trend several years ago. You foresaw yeah. Piaget is still kind of happening. Uh, and in its, I feel like, early days, other things like, you know, Boucheron, I can see growing interest. All of these really well-made gold and precious metals brands. There's a lot more positivity around Giger Le Coultre as well with the launch of the collectibles, two capsules now this year. And, you know, excitement. I think people for the last decade, we're just waiting to be excited about the brand. There was, everyone felt like they had kind of seen everything uh, and the full catalog and there was no real collector resources or good books, I would say about the, about the brand. So that's definitely inspired interest, which helps inspire, you know, values and things selling quicker than they have in the past. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, vintage Breguet, I think those Breguet wristwatches from the 40s to the 60s are obviously even 30s to the 60s are extremely special and rare and uncommon and exceptional, just super hard to find. So that's also a, an area where there's plenty of people that are looking for those and would love to learn more about them. Yeah, no doubt. What do you think about um, about all this craziness going on with this o Omega Speedmaster and the auction. And I mean, I, I would have to assume that people smelt this from like a mile away. Yeah. The, as soon as that watch sold, there was, uh, you know, a lot of uh, discussion that it was a Frankenstein that it had been offered around with incorrect later movement and were service replacement hands and no bezel or incorrect bezel etc. And then it had been kind of pieced together like uh, Dr. Frankenstein's monster to uh, <laughs> make a watch that would set a record at Phillips. So these bad things often don't stay 
you know, six feet under forever. Obviously it came out and it's unfortunate that it happened. Obviously Omega has made their statement and kind of blamed the, the staff of the museum. I've heard, you know, that a lot of watches have gone missing from that museum over the years, maybe to the tune of thousands of prototypes and things like that. It's just a shame, obviously. It's hurt Omega. Uh, I love Omega watches. I've got a beautiful Omega time only. I'm holding in my hand right now that I picked up recently in rose gold. You know, you just look at some of the exceptional watches they've made and they were just as good as anybody else. It's just um, sometimes you have to dig through a lot of kind of average stuff to get to the really, really excellent pieces. But, you know, some of those Omega Platinum constellations and other pieces from the 50s, 60s, they'll just make my jaw drop on the floor when I see them. They're exceptional. Yeah. I mean, you have even at least 10 great Speedmasters on your site right now. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not really moving. I love Speedmasters. One of those watches, like a Submariner that, uh, people should at least own at some point in their collection. I feel like, um, not that I'm one to give you rules that you need to follow, but you know, I had heard many years ago, I think Ben had said, Ben Clymer had said that like everyone should own a Speedmaster at some point in their collecting arc. And I would agree with that. Yeah. I third that. Yeah. That's good. You yeah. Know, I have a great Speedmaster. I don't wear it every day. Partially, it's a three, you know, a three, two, one. It's got the CB case that I love, but it's not water resistant. They're pretty much impossible to make water resistant from that era because of the pushers. And I don't want to replace the pushers to ugly service ones. Understandable. <laughs> in the Florida humidity of uh, June and July, I just don't want the movement to get moisture in there. I don't think anyone wants to send anything to Omega Service right now. No, no, no. But I, <laughs> there's plenty of good people to work on it. I had uh, I had the watch serviced and I love it. But uh, it's like a day-to-day thing. We have three kids under the age of 10. And um, if you're picking you know, the kids up out of the bath or other stuff, uh, vintage Rolex is a little more straightforward for doing that if it's water resistant. Yeah, I suggest a rowing blazers Seiko for that. I it's perfect or a rowing, <laughs> a rowing blazers tutor or zodiac or any number of things <laughs> that too yeah how's your podcast been going significant watches it's been good we had some audio troubles uh two episodes ago i heard but i i, I pushed through the whole thing it was still good that's good yeah Our, the latest episode uh doesn't have those issues uh so yeah it's been a lot of fun i mean it's always fun to put it out there and hear kind of almost instant feedback from people who have listened. Uh, someone from an auction house that I was somewhat tweaked. I kind of tweaked the auction house. I would say on the latest episode wrote back immediately kind of defending the auction house. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that, you know, I was impressed that they were listening like within hours of it coming out. Um, you know, I think it just shows there's, a lot of hunger for content and quality content in the world of watches and particularly with vintage watches, there's not enough content to really satiate the, the passion uh, that people have for, for the subject. There's just not enough content to make you happy each day. So that's why we have such a big following. I feel like even though we don't really, you know, spend a lot of time on it but it's just a fun conversation i put the group together a few years ago i invited the three other people because i thought they each had an interesting perspective on what's happening in in watches in their own way kind of specialty and gabe knows a heck of a lot more about independence than i do and what's happening in that world man he is so knowledgeable it's crazy he is. And I said, you know, years before we started this, I said, Gabe, I think you're maybe the only person on earth I would pay to listen to hear what you have to say, because I learn something every time. And like, 
feel more educated about what's happening in the world of watches. It's true. Uh, it's after, true. I, after I hear you talk, I feel like I've just gotten smarter about like the topics of the day. <laughs> so uh, that's cool. Obviously, when we started it, Tony was not with Hodinkee yet. He was still a lawyer and just doing rescapement as a hobby. And I always enjoyed reading his work and also one of the few people when every article comes out i kind of set everything else aside and would read it and uh the same with charlie so it's been um it's been really fun you know i think we're not making any money whatsoever so it's it's like maybe one day we'll get sponsorships or something like that or i i personally would love to move to a weekly schedule i'm sure a lot of people would as well except charlie who does our editing but um <laughs> you know i think uh hopefully we'll keep with the kind of every other week schedule yeah for sure no i mean i i always uh, enjoy when you guys put stuff out and especially during auction seasons it's always nice to hear your guys opinions on everything coming coming around the yeah coming around the bend yes yeah and it's fun i mean i think it's kind of like a group of people that are friends and people like listening and to hear what we have to say about what we're seeing in the world of of vintage and the watch market and everything else it's great it's very very interesting and certain things really raise my eye like when sjx was writing about the imperial Patek Philippe calendar watch and was yep. saying it's far more important than John Lennon's 2499 and Paul Newman's Daytona and Buzz Aldrin's Speedmaster. Particularly the last one, I was like, uh, yeah, that's a little tough. <laughs> I, I, I just, I personally, it's, I find that a little bit of a reach from my perspective, but it's fun to, you know, raise these things. Otherwise, I just kind of, everyone glosses over it or doesn't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, recently you had the opportunity to do a second HSNY speech. First one was a hit and I thought the second one turned out even better than the first one. Curious to know how you think it went. I thought it went really well. You know, it was kind of daunting. I was thinking about it for six months. So I had, had a lot of time to kind of, brainstorm how you know what's interesting what's going to be helpful and then you really don't write it till the night before yeah exactly i still <laughs> managed to finally put it together the last kind of 48 hours but yeah i mean i thought delivery wise i was very happy with it and i was very happy with the content and you know just try to put myself in the shoes of a collector you know what would i have liked to hear when I first was getting interested in vintage watches and collecting them and writing about them, what would have been helpful to, to know things like, you know, Patek Philippe dial restoration and uh, other things like that, which no one's ever talked about really at, at all. Yeah, no, you had some great images and stuff of that, that you showed and I'll be sure to obviously link it up so everybody can go watch if they haven't already. But I thought that was my favorite part was the dial restoration stuff. Yeah, we could have spent like, you know, 50 hours on that, but just enough to get people interested and in like, wow, they know a lot more now than they did. Um, because I didn't, you know, know that stuff when I was first writing about it. I just thought it was as simple as either it's a reprinted dial or it's original. Not that like there's this huge swath of dial restoration in between those things. So, uh, yeah, so that's interesting. And also, like, I'm trying not, I, I'm not trying to say you can't buy a dial with restoration because like you wouldn't own almost any of 1518 there. almost all have dial restoration and the ones that don't have like heavy spots on them and might not be attractive to a lot of people. So, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just important to know what you're, what you're buying and collecting and what matters to you. Um, right. So at the end of the day, if you're okay with it, then move forward. Yeah, exactly. And like, obviously there's collectors that most collectors care almost, ex you know, exclusively about the dial. I'm, I lean a little bit more towards the case, but the dial's obviously important too. Um, so, you know, it just doesn't matter to, you know, I want people to buy what speaks to them and where they fall on it. You know, I don't need to tell them what to do. 
What about your best and worst releases from this year's Watches and Wonders? <laughs> I don't even know. I hardly remember <laughs> what came out, and we're only uh, only a few months out. I mean, I the, the only thing I I can remember immediately are the are the Rolex models, of course, the Daytona with the uh, steel ring around the bezel, but they're still delivering previous model Daytonas like weekly. I'm seeing people get John Mayer's and other watches, the previous version of steel Daytonas coming straight from Geneva. So I don't know when we're going to start seeing more of the, the new models. Yeah. Who knows? What do you think about the titanium yacht master? I was going to bring that up next. Cause I think Tom Cruise was wearing one, uh, on his mission impossible, uh, world tour. Oh, interesting. I think it's actually a very cool watch, but 42 is a little big for me. Uh, if they had made it in 40, it would be very, very sick. But I like that they've done nice big bevels on the case. I like titanium as a case metal. Gabe, really, Gabe Benador really won me over to the titanium team uh, years ago when he was talking about all the positive attributes of titanium beyond being light. I think it's just can be finished very attractively. I thought that was one of the cooler watches. Like I never thought we'd see titanium Rolex watches like that available for the consumer market. It just, it just seemed like that was not something they were going to do, but they did. I'm curious to know how it's going to wear on the bracelet. Cause I think on oyster flex, it's way too big. Yeah. And I don't know if on the bracelet, if it'll kind of hug the wrist more. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious as well. Uh, Tom was wearing it on a bracelet, I think. So such a cool uh, watch. Yeah, yeah. That that's one that stopped me for a moment, and uh, I was impressed with. I haven't been very impressed with the modern Patek Philippe watches. The one watch that has passed through my hands recently that I was impressed with was the 5811 uh, Nautilus. You know. I've sold a lot of modern and vintage Nautilus watches over the years, but not a lie, not a lie. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, outside the one watch I really like is the 3,700, particularly in steel for me personally. I was going to ask you about that. Cause last time we spoke, that was, that was a grail for you. And I was curious if that still stands. Yeah, I've had, I had a really great one in the collection for a while. I think I mentioned it, but it's, now Daniel take Kim's watch and I ask him I get a parental uh, visitation occasionally but <laughs> a sleepover <laughs> a sleepover with the watcher at least yeah. uh, at least a play date but yeah the uh, 5811 I was very impressed with the finishing and movement and everything else it seemed to me a lot nicer watch overall in terms of construction than the 5711 the 5740 is also impressive perpetual calendar but outside of that, those are the only two I really, really like or impressed with construction-wise and everything else. Um, I do like the 5711 with green dial. Just I like the dial and everything. But the 5711 case, to me, is just way more crude than the 3700. Yeah, for sure. Have you seen any intriguing 3700s come up that you thought about adding? The nicest one I've seen in a while is Dr. Greg Petronzi's watch uh, from True Patina and the True Dome crystals that I love. But he bought a 3700 recently. That's spectacular. So I've been uh, occasionally pestering him to sell that to me. <laughs> and how's that going? Not well, but he usually <laughs> does sell things after a while. So uh, he gets a he gets an itchy trigger finger and doesn't keep things, you know, forever is my uh, experience with him. Well, for now, I guess you get to enjoy the two-tone one that you have on your site. Exactly, exactly. How do you like that watch in two-tone? I like it. The dial's super attractive. There's two versions of two-tone. Most of them you see have a blue dial, but the gold dial is spectacular. It's a really beautiful dial and uh, feels very Cameron Ross Steiner to me. Yeah, I, I happen to really love the gold dial on the two-tone Nautilus. Yeah, it's way, way nicer than the blue, and it's just a cool thing. Very special. Love it. Any uh, new and exciting collabs that you have coming up that you could share or give us a hint at? 
We've got some really cool watches in the works. I won't say what they are, but I'm very excited about them. Uh, with throwing blazers, working on my first kind of win vintage solo watch collab and some cool new retail partnerships in the works with others just to continue to, you know, expand and spread the the gospel of vintage watches in new places. Um, so that's really it. I mean, I just continuing to list a lot of great watches as well and sell a lot of great watches and pretty, pretty simple formula. Love it. We're, we're here for it all. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I want to wrap up with the collector's gene rundown. I know we did it the last time I had you on. So I, I tweaked the questions a little bit or refined them. So I'll try and keep you on your toes a bit. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What's the one that got away this year? I mean, there's nothing that I absolutely regret selling. I mean, um, I was working on a, the Turnek Rayville that went to Sotheby's um, in New York recently. The guy reached out to someone else I knew who referred him to me. And, uh, you know, I gave him my thoughts. And then he, you know, he had dollar signs in his eyes and I was trying to be realistic. But he sees, you know, 150K results at at Christie's. And I said, listen, I just don't think, think the market's there. I think it's more like 100, 110, 120 and kind of made my pitch. And uh, he decided to put it at Sotheby's and he did, I think, worse than what I was pitching being able to get for him. So, uh, you know, that's reality. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But, um, you know, you only get one shot at the at the roulette table sometimes in that situation if it's a watch you've inherited or purchased new. So you do your best to try to give them the best advice you can and, and guide them. But in this case, he decided to go to auction, which is certainly fine. And he got he got the true market value for the watch less, you know, 25% yeah. plus on the buyer's premium side because it only went for about 100 all in. So... Oh. Uh, I think he's going to walk away with 80 or less, but, uh, it's reality. Certainly it, it, he got issued the watch. It was free. So that's not a bad come up for him. That, that'll do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about the on deck circle? So this could be a watch. This could be a watch brand. This could be, uh, an up and coming blog besides wind vintage. What's something you think everyone should pay attention to in the watch world right now? The Volcane Cricket. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's a great question. I can't think of something everyone needs to pay attention to. I think people are focused on their own area of interest. There's obviously a lot of people interested in independence. There's people interested, huge percentage of people interested in Rolex. I think JLC is, is growing for the first time in a while. So I'm happy about that in terms of the collector community with vintage. You know, I hope uh, people continue to look not just to auction as the place to buy high-end watches, but to dealers in a self-interested way. And uh, yeah, I think um, there's a lot of exciting things happening with watches from, you know, a lot more content on YouTube to TikTok and uh, Instagram remains still central to all of this. But, you know, I think uh, continued conversations for people in the world of watches. Absolutely. How about the unobtainable? So what's a vintage watch that's unobtainable that you think should be obtainable? I mean, that white gold uh, jumbo tank (laughs) would be great. I'd love to obtain that. Usually it's the opposite. I'm thinking of watches that are extremely undervalued that should be worth more. But something that's unobtainable that I wish there were we're more of, I think, just anything great condition. It demands such a premium for something like that. Yeah, but what I have been really focused on as well with my site is like, what would I wish I had in terms of a site to search for when I was getting into collecting again, like 15 years ago? And that would be a site like Win Vintage where I could find a bunch of unpolished watches like that didn't exist, you know, 
<laughs> five or six years ago, you couldn't be, you couldn't even find an unpolished date chest out there. It was extremely difficult. And you felt like you had to spend like months, if not years, trying to find one that was truly unpolished. So that was part of, you know, the impetus is I'm excited to offer really excellent condition, unpolished subs. Again, it felt like it would take years to find an unpolished sub. When I bought my very first Submariner I bought around 2010 was a Bart Simpson dial and it was polished and gilt, you know, kind of end of the gilt era. And the lower right lug was more polished than the others, which was really driving me crazy. And at that time, like the word unpolished basically didn't exist. And uh, I began trying to study, you know, the limited photos that were out there on Google Images, Instagram didn't exist yet, and trying to figure out what should the bevels look like on this? You know, are there supposed to be bevels? What do the lugs look like? What do the crown guards look like? And like, not really, there wasn't even discussion that, oh, the 80s subs look different than the 60s subs that have wider bevels and things like that. But like, people almost take it for granted that you could just go online and buy an unpolished, you know, Submariner or something like that. But it's was so hard to do. And we would see so few at Christie's or other places. So that, you know, I think people almost take it for granted. But I certainly, if I was getting into vintage watches 15 years ago, would also be like, wow, what's what's coming up for sale on Win Vintage that I can buy that's in great condition? <laughs> it's hard. Well, to yeah, I think you've definitely achieved that. I think your site is the best it's ever been in terms of inventory and content and all that stuff. So. Thank you. Yeah. Also the content, like in an ideal world, we would be putting up an interesting article every day. Um, that is something like the bar there is also what would I want to read or look at in terms of a photo report or something else. Like I find photo reports very inspiring personally to see what people are wearing, how they're wearing it. I like to see what's out there and um, dynamic like honestly, photo reports, I think for me are even more interesting to look at than just scrolling through Instagram and looking at a wrist shot of something with no context. I really like looking at photo reports. Yeah, it's great because it's usually based around an event, right? Yeah, and you get like a vibe for the event and like also, you know, what, you know, it's fun, just fun to see what people are wearing. It's like, you know, it always brings a smile to my face uh, as long as there's good watches. So in an ideal world, we would be publishing a piece of content every day as well. Love it. The page one rewrite. So if you could rewrite the history of one watch brand, who would it be? That's a really good question. I think um, Patek Philippe's history is wonderful. I don't think you need to do anything there. I love the Rolex history. Um, again, I can't see myself rewriting anything with that. Lange could probably use a rewrite for their World War II era. Yeah. Uh, we'll just skip over that era. Yeah. Um, by the way, Rolex, I always admired that they helped with, you know, the prisoners of war in the Nazi camps, like the Stalag, uh, Luft 17 and these other, um, prisoner of war camps that Rolex would give watches for people who ordered them and say, don't even think about paying until you're out. I mean, pretty, pretty unbelievable. Patek did that as well in at least one case, but Rolex did it for a lot of people. I guess if there is one, a couple kind of tough moments, tag Hoyer, obviously when they were Hoyer and had to sell to tag in the 1980s, in the courts crisis, how it really affected them. And they had got Jack Hoyer had led them down to make all these different digital watches as well on the seventies. Um, you know, chrono split and all these other kind of interesting digital watches, but that eat batteries like crazy if they even survive. Um, I wish, you know, I wish they had, uh, the financial resources where they didn't have to do that and could have, kind of continued on their path of 60s and 70s watches updated that are so awesome. Some of my favorites and really one of my early loves with watches would have been interesting if Rolex, if the King Midas 
had been super successful for Rolex and they had this whole like, some people say it was maybe Genta designed or whatever. It certainly feels that way. But what if Rolex had really continued to expand on that whole concept and like, I can't even imagine what a King Midas would look like right now. (laughs) Yeah. Like what if they did that and like beat the Royal Oak and the Nautilus and everyone else and we're like the Kings of the luxury sports watch. That would be hilarious. Yeah. That's like an alternate history. That would be interesting instead like, you know, the King Midas is grotesquely undervalued compared to the other watches, even though it's, arguably a much better made watch, particularly in that 70s period. Yeah, I think those are just a few interesting ideas. How about the GOAT? So obviously this is who you think is the greatest of all time, but is there another collector or I guess of that kind of sort that's that's come up on the scene recently that you think folks should pay attention to? Cameron Ross Steiner. He's a <laughs> Oh, I did not set you up for that. <laughs> no. um, <laughs> there's some great collectors that are uh, coming up on the scene. It's interesting because obviously I spend a lot of time each day talking to collectors and I love what I do as a vintage watch dealer because I'm hunting for great watches, also trying to place them in great homes uh, and help people build their collections. Sometimes people come in and you can tell there's almost a manic energy to it that's not healthy. And like like they've had, you know, too many cups of coffee in the morning, if you will. <laughs> and that's not good because those people burn out. Or in some cases, I had a client who was a wealthy doctor, but he wasn't conveying to his wife the, the purchases he was making in terms of dollar amounts. Uh, and... She had a heart attack when she found out how much he had spent on watches uh, and maybe threatened divorce. So had to sell most of the collection, which was devastating, disheartening, sickening, all of those things. Um, Wish he had been more honest at the the front. Uh, I've heard, unfortunately, that story happen a a few times where... uh, you know, wives thought the watches that their husbands were bringing home were one one hundredth of the the price of what they actually were. So, uh, word of wisdom is just don't lie to your your significant other about the prices of these things if if it's relevant to the significant other in some way. Yeah, and not all doctors can be trusted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you have totally partitioned finances, maybe it doesn't matter as much or yeah. whatever. In some cases, it really does matter. So uh, so that's important. <laughs> it's been nice to see like some of these uh, articles and photos coming out of like uh, Ali and AJ and, and Ronnie Chang and all these guys wearing the watches that you've either sold them or you know the, the collaborations that you've done. I think that that's been, been really cool to watch. Yeah, that's that's one of the most kind of exciting and rewarding things about doing these watches. I mean, we even uh, Mindy Kaling wore uh, Zodiac Rowing Blazers recently, and that was just super cool. She's not really known as a big watch person, but she really likes it. Uh, Z-Way has been uh, wearing a few pieces. There. She, she got a Tudor Rowing Blazer she loves, and she has... Seiko rowing placers as well. That's sick. So yeah, just continuing to, uh, you know, get new and interesting people out there wearing great watches. It's a good thing for, for all of us. The hunt or the ownership. So what's a watch in your collection that you hunted for a long time that you still own and love to this day? I mean, the Submariner was one of the first, like, uh, that really is a special watch. The Submariner, you know, I think, for some people, it's a little bit tired because it's like the watch that they think everyone gets when they get their first bonus check on Wall Street and things like that. But for me, the sub was like the first luxury watch I knew about. And that was something I really wanted to get a great, like a great vintage sub with beautiful patina, you know, on the loom plots and a great bezel, just Oh, that great rivet bracelet. That was what I wanted. And I spent years looking for, um, 
when vintage.com didn't exist for me to just go on and buy an unpolished one. Uh, sure. So it does now. Uh, it took a long time to find one that was like the perfect watch. I bought it from Paul Altieri of Bob's watches. Uh, and I was just like, couldn't stop looking at the watch when I, you know, he let me kind of look through some of his personal pieces. And um, I was like, Paul, you've got to, this is insane. Would you sell this for the 5512? I wasn't even looking for a 5512. I just wanted that great watch, unpolished case and beautiful patina for the loom. And it was like, also made my heart hurt when I saw it. So uh, that's when you know. Yeah, that was it. Uh, and, you know, that was, uh, I don't wear it as much as other watches. You know, I, I prefer wearing a GMT. It's a little bit thinner profile. I like the colors of the bezel a little bit more fun. The Submariner is more staid and serious, but um, it's just a very special watch. What's your thoughts on stabilizing the hands so that, you know, you, you kind of give yourself a little insurance policy with, with the degradation that can happen with tritium. I think it's good to do if the watch is going in for, for service, particularly might as well do it. Um, Greg Petronzi, true patina does a good job. He doesn't work on radium watches, uh, because he's afraid of, uh, getting sick or, you know, cancer from the, the radon and the other, radiation but um, it's always a good idea the issue is just making sure that the watchmaker you have stabilizing it is using the right kind of glue because certain glues will um, actually discolor change the color of the hands so you don't want it to be this attractive warm kind of pale yellow and then stabilize it and they go black uh, <laughs> wouldn't be a good thing but it has happened for people that use amateurs um, so uh, that's not good but you know the reality is it's too many people I are focused on the loom in the hands if everything else is original and amazing on a watch and there's maybe loom that's fallen out of a hand or you know something else like to me that's not a reason not to get the watch. You just get the there. You just get that loom, you know, redone, color matched, etc. And you know, the loom is not meant to last five hundred years in these watches, but the rest of the watch could last that long. But you know, the loom is just sitting there unsupported, like a trampoline. Like eventually, the trampoline's going to sag and fall out. Like you know, it's just for me a crazy thing to expect that even like. 50, 60 year old watches, the loom should be absolutely perfect in the hands. Otherwise I'm not buying it. If you do get it stabilized, does that last for forever? I mean, or is that something like you have to maintain? I don't know. I think no one knows necessarily. <laughs> I guess we'll wait. We'll wait to find out. Yeah, it does help. It certainly uh, seem to help at this point of, of it not developing holes or fissures or cracks. Should make it a little bit more you know, impact resistant, if you will, it won't just fall out. But, you know, loom is ultimately could kind of just disintegrate and, and fall. So, you know, hopefully that, that helps prolong that process. So it doesn't do that. Sure. Alrighty. I, I know this answer from the last time, but I got to ask it again. Do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I started with, you know, baseball cards and football cards and those sorts of things and coins that I had inherited, just all the, you know, even as a younger kid wanting to collect little souvenirs from museum gift shops, my favorite thing was going to the museum and then picking out something in the gift shop. <laughs> so, you know, it all starts from there and, uh, and didn't expect it would, uh, advanced to watches but hopefully it doesn't go too far crazy beyond watches watches are enough love it e thank you so much for coming on again uh it's been such a pleasure getting to know you over the last few years and watching all the endeavors that you have going on with wind vintage and the podcast that you have and and 
and everything with rowing blazers and we're all on the sidelines continuously rooting for you well thank you Cameron. i hope we can get dinner in phoenix uh, sometime soon but not over the summer not until it takes a <laughs> yeah, little please wait <laughs> <laughs> thank you cameron anytime talk soon all right that does it for this episode thank you all for listening to collector's gene radio 